Man, we just always, uh, we, we love, we, we have a culture of loving each other, I think, uh, during that meet and greet time, but, but we also have a culture of honoring God's word. Is that true? Amen. Amen. All right. How many of you uh, are familiar with Leon Fontaine? Leon Fontaine. Uh, Leon, uh, Pastor Leon uh, passed away last year, but, uh, but he pastored Springs Church in Winnipeg, and we actually had a group of leadership. I think we went there maybe four years in a row, I think maybe, something like that, three, three years in a row at least, to his leadership conference. And uh, I loved Pastor Leon. It, actually, uh, you know, he, he was the inspiration of that, that, uh, that phrase, spirit contemporary, which we like to use in our growth track uh, a little bit. But, um, but there was a story that, that Pastor Leon shared that really stuck with me. And I just want to share that story with you. He was, he was preaching one time at a, a church in another city, and uh, as he got up to, to preach, uh, he noticed that everyone was quite distracted. And, uh, and as he started to preach and was preaching the Word of God, he, he started to realize that, that people weren't really listening to him preach. That people were very distracted and they were looking at their phones and they were talking and, and they were just disinterested. They looked bored. And, and he's preaching his guts out. And, uh, and so I don't know if you know about preaching at all, but, but sometimes when you're up here, it can be a very lonely place. And, and so you try to find faces that are encouraging and, and smiling and engaged with you. And then the grumpy faces, you just try to ignore those. And, and so... And so uh, Pastor Leon was preaching, and he just thought no one's paying attention to him. No one's paying attention to the word that he's preaching, except he found this one elderly woman at the very back of the church. And so he didn't even look around when he was preaching. He just looked at this elderly woman, and he preached to her for about 45 minutes. And, and so at the end of, of his preaching, um, he had a time where he invited everyone to come for prayer, some altar time. And so he made that invitation, and it was crickets, except for that one elderly woman. And so she stood up, uh, but when she stood up, she was, she was hunched over like this because she had so much uh, arthritis in her back that she couldn't straighten up. And so she very slowly walked from the back of the church all the way to the altar. And she was the only one that came for prayer. Pastor Leon went down, he laid hands on her. He said, while he was praying, there was a crack. And she stood up like she, like she was uh, standing at attention. She was completely healed, just like that. Then, everybody else started to come to the altar. <laughs> but you know what he said? He said, that day, that elderly woman was the only one that was healed. What's the difference? She had a holy fear of God. She had reverence and respect for the word of God. She esteemed and honored the word of God by being engaged and listening and receiving. When Pastor Leon was preaching, she valued the word. She delighted in the word. He said she had a big smile on her face the whole time that he was preaching. The difference is that woman trembled. She trembled at the word of God. Isaiah 66, 2 says, My hands have made both heaven and earth. They, are, they and everything in them 
are mine. Wow. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts who tremble at my word. That, that phrase, I will bless, it actually comes from a Hebrew word called nabat. That word means to look at or to, to watch. It, it, has, it has the sense of looking intensely in a focused way at something. So when God says, I will bless those with humble and contrite hearts who tremble at his word, he, he's saying, these are the people who I'm gonna play, who I'm gonna pay close attention to. The ones who tremble at my word. See, to tremble at God's word is to exalt his word above anything else. It's true evidence of, of someone who has a holy fear of God. Look at Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Look at the description, though, of the church. They always obeyed. They always obeyed. That's unconditional obedience. No matter the circumstance, or whether you sense his presence or not, in his presence or not, whether you feel like it or not, you just obey. This is what someone does who trembles at God's word. They always obey. This is the key to working out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is how we become spiritually mature. This is how we become like Jesus. This is how we stay on that road of holiness that we talked about last week and stay out of the ditch of, of legalism and stay out of the other ditch of lawlessness. This is how we stay humble and pure. It's obedience to God's word and to God's voice. Today I wanna, I wanna look at a story in the Bible that, that really sets the stage for the cross and sets the stage for God's plan of salvation. And in my opinion, this is one of the most incredible examples of obedience ever. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. How many of you are familiar with Abraham and Isaac? Every time I read this story, my jaw drops. So let me tell you the story, and then we're going to talk about it. Does that sound okay? When Abraham was 75 years old, okay, he and his wife Sarah have no children. Sarah is 65 years old. But then one day God comes to Abraham and he tells Abraham, he promises him that he's going to be the father of many nations and that his descendants are going to outnumber the stars in the sky but not only that, but it's going to happen through him and his wife, Sarah. That, that, he, that they're going to have a son that's going to start that promise. Okay, But then that promise is not fulfilled for another 25 years. So God promises this to Abraham. He's 75 years old. Now Abraham is 100 years old. And his wife, Sarah, is 90 years old, and they have their son, Isaac. I'm going to go on a limb. And I'm going to say that was a miracle. <laughs> okay. Um, 
but then a number of years later, God, for some reason, comes to Abraham and he asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering to him. And so many historians believe that Isaac was, was around 20 years old or in his early 20s when this happened. Okay, and so that's significant because that means that's at least 45 years then after God made this promise to Abraham. So Abraham's 120, uh, Sarah's 110. So if, if Abraham sacrifices his own son, that means that promise is not going to come to pass. That promise is going to die with Isaac. Okay? But Abraham has a holy fear of God. That's the only way you can, do, that's the only way you can explain this obedience. That's it. He has a holy fear of God. Abraham trembles at God's word. Anyone who trembles at God's word does what? Obeys. Obeys his voice. So Abraham obeys the voice of God. He takes Isaac on a journey, I believe it's a three-day journey, and he goes up a mountain, and they're preparing the, the sacrifice, and Isaac still doesn't know what's about to happen. Because Isaac asks his father, Dad, hey, we've got everything ready, but where's the sacrifice? And do you know what Abraham says? He says, it's okay, son. God will provide the lamb. God will provide the lamb. Then Abraham binds his son. He lays him on the altar. He's about to kill his son so he can sacrifice him to the Lord when an angel of the Lord stops him. And then God provides a ram for the sacrifice that day. But how many of you know about 2,000 years later, God did provide the lamb? Hallelujah. Psalm 112 in verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. How joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight in obeying his commands. Obedience is not supposed to be a burden. Obedience is actually joy for those who fear the Lord. And, and so I read this scripture because I really believe this is where God wants to take us. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like obedience is a burden. Is that true? I know it feels that way with kids sometimes, right? We ask them to clean their room. It's like we just punch them in the face or something. Their reaction, because, because it's such a burden, right? But God wants to take us from, from obedience as a burden to obedience as joy. That we can actually joy, have joy in obedience. Does that sound great? Does it sound amazing? That even when God calls us to obey, that he gives us joy for the obedience? That's the God that we serve. Amen. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for today. I thank you for your presence here. I thank you, God, for everything that, that you've already done. I thank you, God, for loving us. And God, I just pray now that, that we're going to receive your word today, that we're going to have holy fear for the word of God today, that we're going to tremble at your word and your voice that we're not just going to hear your word, but we're all going to respond to the word of God today. That not one of us is going to leave the same way that we came in, but that your word is going to change us. That we're going to have a new found joy in the word of God, in the voice of God, in obedience today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first thing I want to do is I want to talk about three things that quickly that we can learn 
from obedience, about obedience from Abraham. I want to talk about three enemies of obedience. And then I want to talk about what God has specifically done for us to empower us to obey him. Does that sound good? Okay, let's go. Number one, characteristic of obedience, something that we can learn from Abraham, is obey immediately. Obeying God means obeying immediately. In Genesis chapter 22, God tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your own son. That's 22 verse 2. In verse 3, this is Abraham's response. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. Abraham's response was immediate obedience. Early the next morning. This is the right response of someone who trembles at God's word and God's voice. When you delay, you disobey. When we delay, we disobey. Let me, let me help you with that. Let's say you're driving. You're in traffic and a police car pulls up right beside you. And the police car motions at you, pull over. And your response is, in a minute. <laughs> and you drive for a little while. And, and you finish listening to the song that you're listening to on the, on the radio. And then you decide, now it's a good time for me to obey. And so I, you pull over. Will that police officer think that you obeyed? Absolutely not. Yeah, but I pulled over. <laughs> Delayed obedience is disobedience. Is that true? Delayed obedience is disobedience. How many of you parents would agree with that? <laughs> but isn't it amazing how we delay in obeying God, but we still expect that he should respond to us immediately. So, so we sometimes, I think we sometimes act like kids. Right? We delay in doing the things God asks us to do, like chores. But, but then we expect our parents should give us money, and they should give us a ride, and they should make supper immediately when we ask. Right? If it's not our priority to obey his word, why would we expect it to be God's priority to even acknowledge our need? Why would we expect that? 1 Samuel 2 verse 30, God says, I will honor those who honor me. I will despise those who think lightly of me. See, we think lightly of God when we neglect to obey or we delay in obeying his word. We think lightly of God when we don't forgive when he calls us to forgive. We communicate that God is not our priority. That word despise, when God says I'll despise those who think lightly of me, that word despise, the Hebrew word there actually means trivial. It means trivial. God will be trivial to what's important to us when we delay in obedience. But someone with holy fear doesn't take God lightly, but will obey immediately. Number two, uh, they, uh, uh, sorry, number two, obey when it doesn't make sense. Number two is obey when it doesn't make any sense. This command of God to Abraham makes absolutely no sense. Does it? If you're hearing this from God, 
right? This makes absolutely no sense. It's taken 45 years to get to this point since God promised this to Abraham. Abraham is now really old, right? If Isaac dies, then this promise of being the father of many nations, that dies too. God is seemingly going against his word. He's going against his promise. This makes no sense. And so sometimes we need to understand And and I don't think this happens often, but we need to understand that sometimes God is going to ask us to do something that doesn't make sense until we obey. It probably didn't make sense for that blind guy when, when he hears Jesus spitting in dirt and now Jesus is rubbing mud on his eyes. That probably didn't make a lot of sense. Until he could see. Right? It, it, probably, it probably really confused the caterers at, at that wedding that Jesus was invited to. When Jesus instructed them to put water in all the bottles because they ran out of wine. That would not have made much sense until they tasted the best wine they've ever had in their life. It didn't make sense For Peter to cast the net again after fishing all night. But when he obeyed Jesus, it made sense when the boat was nearly swamped with all the fish. You know the one that I always think of that would be so puzzling? Was was when Joshua told the Israel army what the battle plan is for Jericho. He gets all the army together. Here's what we're going to do. Everyone's like, yeah, we're ready. Right? We're all ready to go. Okay, first, we're going to walk around the walls of the city. And we're going to do that every day for seven days. Okay, okay. But here's what we're going to do next. Okay, okay, I knew that wasn't it. On the seventh day, we're going to walk around the walls of the city seven times. I'm struggling to follow Joshua. He said, but that's not it. Okay, good, good. I thought, you were, I thought that was all it's going to be. What's next? Okay, here's what's next. Then after we do that, we're going to shout... At the walls. <laughs> they, they would have thought Joshua was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> that didn't make any sense until they obeyed and the walls came tumbling down. I wonder if, if some walls coming down might be on the other side of simple obedience. And when Abraham obeyed, he was not able to just see God's promise fulfilled, but he was able to know God's plan of salvation for all of mankind. Wow. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. God calls us to do things that don't make sense, but his wisdom is always confirmed in the results. Matthew eleven nineteen says, But wisdom is shown to be right by its results. How many of you know this scripture, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. This is a very important truth for us to get a hold of today. Are you ready? God is smarter than you. God is smarter than me. Okay, and unless we understand that, Unless we're willing to trust 
his voice and trust his word, we will easily be swayed from obedience. So obey immediately. Obey when it doesn't make sense. Number three, obey even when it hurts. I can't imagine what was going through Abraham's heart and mind on this three-day journey to go kill his son. I can't imagine the anguish that would have been going on inside of him. And you know, Jesus is absolutely the greatest example of obeying when it hurts. Philippians 2.8 says, He appeared as a man. He was humble and obeyed God completely. Jesus must have a holy fear of God because he always obeyed. He did this even though it led to his death. Even worse, he died on a cross. Jesus had tremendous anguish going to the cross, right? And we know that because we see what happens in the garden in Luke twenty two forty four. It says, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. In Matthew 26, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. How many of you know that Jesus doesn't exaggerate? But he was under such tremendous anguish and emotional and mental stress that it actually induced a medical condition that today we know is hematidrosis, which, which actually made him sweat blood. And, and it's the anguish of, of facing a Roman crucifixion. It's the anguish of the pain and the rejection from the people that he's dying for. It's anguish of, of becoming sin and shame. Do you know that Jesus became our sin? But the worst of his anguish was for being separated from his father for the first time in all eternity. And we get a glimpse of this pain that he's going through in Psalm 22. This is a prophetic word about Jesus about a thousand years before Jesus uh, is on the earth. It says, my God, my God. This, this is a prophetic word this is, this is the Messiah, this is Jesus speaking. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. This is what Jesus was going through when he was on the cross. And yet in all of that pain, he still obeyed. Matthew 26, Jesus prays, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me, yet I want your will, be, will to be done, not mine. What motivated that obedience? What makes Jesus obey when he's facing that kind of pain and anguish? Hebrews chapter 5 says, While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers. Why? Because of his deep reverence for God. What motivated Jesus to obey? It was holy fear. 1 Peter 4, 1 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. We need to arm ourselves with holy fear because holy fear is what's going to give us that deep resolve, that, that determination to obey God no matter what the consequences. It's like Esther when she decided to, to go before the king, and her, her, she said, if I die, I die. It's that kind of holy fear that allows us, empowers us to obey. Psalm 15, 4 says, who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath 
even when it hurts and does not change their mind. Aren't you so glad Jesus didn't change his mind? Aren't you so glad Jesus had a fear of God? Hallelujah. So now I want to talk quickly about three enemies of obedience. And the first one is, is if we haven't surrendered. This is an enemy to obedience. This means Jesus is not king of our heart. And Jesus is not Lord of our life. And this means that we serve a different master if we're not surrendered to, to Jesus. This is where we believe that God is not qualified to run our life. Okay, let's just say it how it is. Because that's how it is. If we're not surrendered, we don't believe he's qualified to run our life. This is where we're like King Solomon. We became wise in our own, what? Eyes. Thinking we actually know better than the God who created us. This is when we don't trust that he's a good, good father, but we choose to trust in ourselves and lean not on his understanding. But holy fear brings us into submission. How many of you know that beholding God in his glory will absolutely bend our knees? That when we see God in his majesty, every knee will bow. Hallelujah. So we haven't surrendered. Here's another enemy of obedience. Number two is we've become entitled. We've become entitled. We come to a place where we feel we can we can kind of rest on our laurels, right? We can kind of just rest on our achievements. All the things that we've accomplished in the kingdom of God, all the things that we've done for God, now we can kind of rest on that and, and we get a free pass now from obeying God's word because God, I've done so much for you, now I get a little free pass to obeying. I'm friends with, with a, a pastor and, uh, and at one point, he had a very successful ministry. He had a, a, just a thriving church, a big church in, in a small uh, city or a big town. I'm not sure exactly what I would describe this place. But, but he had just a thriving ministry. And at the height of his ministry, he had an affair, uh, which, ended, uh, which, which, which caused him to lose his ministry for, for a number of years. And I talked with him about this several years later. I talked to him. And, and I asked him why this happened. And he said, he said he became entitled. He said he actually thought that he earned the right to have an affair because of his success and all that he's done for God. He thought that he deserved a free pass from being faithful in his marriage. He actually thought that. Okay, this is, this is what happens when we have that, that attitude of entitlement, you know. And so he was out of ministry for a while. He's repented and, and he bounced back and God blessed him tremendously in ministry. But this is what I think happened to King David. You know, the Bible says it was the time when kings were to go off to war with their armies. But the day that David first saw Bathsheba, he was just getting out of bed mid-afternoon. He didn't feel the need to go with his army because he had that sense, in my opinion, of entitlement, right? That he can kind of just rest on his laurels. All the things he's done for Israel and for God. He commits adultery, then he commits murder. And then when Nathan confronts David of his sin, David has no idea that he's talking about him. He has no idea. Right? Like he's, he's, he has no regret or guilt or shame or discernment of any kind that he's done anything wrong because of this sense of entitlement until the Holy Spirit convicts his heart and then he's wrecked. Right? Until the Holy Spirit shows him that wrong attitude in his heart. But this should be our attitude about anything we do or have done for God. Ready? Luke chapter 17 and verse 10. So you too, when you've done everything that was assigned and commanded to you, say, I'm awesome. No, that's not what you say. But when you've done everything that was assigned and commanded to you, say, we are unworthy servants. 
We merely have done what we ought to do. See, no matter what we do for God, we're unworthy servants. And, and let me help you with understanding that word unworthy. The Greek word for unworthy is undeserving of special praise, not worthy of particular commendation. Remember in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 where God calls us to offer, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice? Okay, he says by the mercies of God, that's very important, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It doesn't say this is your exceptional service. Service. It says this is our reasonable service. Is it important? The things that we do for the kingdom, is that important? Absolutely. Your purpose in the kingdom of God is very important. But in comparison to what God has done for us, it's just reasonable. It just makes sense. It's just rational that after everything Jesus accomplished for us, that we're going to serve God. Does that make sense? It doesn't make us worthy of entitlement. It's just what we do as slaves of righteousness. How many of you are a slave of righteousness? And God absolutely is going to reward us for our service. He's going to reward us greatly at that judgment seat of Christ. I mean, it's going to be incredible rewards. Okay? Don't worry about that. But when we have that sense of entitlement, it's like we're trying to reward ourselves. And trust me, the way we reward ourselves is going to be so pathetic compared to the way God wants to reward us. I think we should just let him do it. So... not surrendering our heart, having that sense of entitlement. Another enemy of obedience is having a seared conscience. That we have seared our conscience. Our conscience is is part of our heart. You know, our conscience, it's kind of like that gut feeling that we get, right? When when we we know better, we know we're doing something we shouldn't be doing. It's God warning us when we're disobeying his word. Another way to say it is Holy Spirit conviction. Holy Spirit conviction. Right? So our conscience, it safeguards us against the consequences of disobedience. And so the more holy fear we have for God, the more sensitive we are to his voice and that warning in our conscience. The more holy fear, the more sensitive. But that sensitivity is dulled when we start to ignore and disobey God's word. When we lack holy fear, that sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit, that sensitivity to that gut feeling starts to get dulled, right? It's just like when when we burn ourselves, let's say I burn my hand right here, right? We burn, I burn the skin, and, and so I burned all the nerve endings of, of this part of my hand. And so now when I touch it, it's not sensitive to the touch anymore. I can't sense, I can't sense that anymore. I can't feel that anymore because it's been seared. That's the way it is with Disobedience. The more we ignore the Holy Spirit and disobey, the less we we can feel and sense the voice of God because we've seared our conscience. So let's say, God, God, uh, let's say that that you are, are, are offended by someone. Someone has done something, okay, and it has really offended you. It made you very angry, and you have offense towards another person, okay? And so our flesh... Our, our sinful nature wants to live in that offense, doesn't it? it? It really loves it. It wants to just take a nice big old swim, right? And, and just soak it in. But 
the Holy, but the Holy Spirit warns us, warns you in your conscience, and the Holy Spirit, so that person offends you, and you're right ready to get mad, but then the Holy Spirit gives you a little punch in the gut and says, don't be so touchy. But you ignore that warning, and you choose to disobey, and you choose to live in that offense. And then next week you see that person at church, and you are so angry, you're just immediately right there. And the Holy Spirit warns you again, except this time it doesn't feel like a gut, like a punch to the gut. This time it's just a little tap on the shoulder. Right? You're not quite as sensitive to it now. And the Holy Spirit says, you need to forgive right now because I forgave you. But then we ignore and we disobey. And pretty soon we can't even hear the warning of God anymore because we've seared our conscience Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. We need to guard our heart. We need to guard our conscience because it's going to determine how our life goes. And absolutely, it can impact our faith and it can impact our eternity. 1 Timothy 1.19 says, cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some have deliberately violated their consciences. How do we violate our conscience? We ignore and we disobey. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. It is possible for a person's faith to crash. It's possible for someone to completely fall away from Jesus because of a seared conscience. Look at 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit, Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times some will depart from their faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Do you know that every time we disobey, we're searing our conscience and we are fooling only ourselves? James 1.22 says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. See, when we disobey, we deceive ourselves. We weaken the protection that God's word gives us. We start to lose our moral compass. It starts to become unclear what we're supposed to do. Uh, because of this seared conscience, right? Now we're less aware of the dangers and the consequences of disobedience. We've now fooled ourselves. We've deceived ourselves. And now we're living with the consequences of sin. And so going back to that illustration of forgiveness, we continue to ignore and disobey and now we're dealing with the poison that bitterness is going to have in our spirit. Now the enemy's got a foothold in our life and able to come in and oppress and kill and steal and destroy because we didn't take heed of the word of God. We've seared our conscience. But the fear of God, we know that's the beginning of wisdom, So someone with holy fear, they're not going to delay in repenting. When the Holy Spirit says, don't be touchy, we say, yes, Lord. And we immediately repent. And we immediately love. Because we know the danger when we don't. How many of you know that, that God has actually empowered us to obey? Let's go back to Abraham for a minute. In Hebrews 11, we, we really see what, what Abraham was thinking through this process when God told him that he needs to sacrifice his son. We, we, we can see here in Hebrews what was actually going through Abraham's mind. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, I, in Isaac your seed shall be called. 
concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So let's understand what that's saying. Abraham's saying, this is saying that, that Abraham reasoned that if, if he killed his own son, God would raise him up again from, from, from dead. Okay, and, and so Abraham was so confident. He was so confident in God's promise, right, from 45 years ago that he was willing to obey God and, and kill his own son. And so we need to ask ourselves, what did, God, what did God do for Abraham to bring him to that level of obedience? Like, how do we get to that level of obedience? Right? And so there's two things. First of all, he gave Abraham a promise. In Genesis 15, I'm not sure if I put that on the notes or not. Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that his descendants are going to outnumber the stars. He gives them a promise. He gave Abraham his word. How many of you know that God can't lie? Numbers 23, 19 says, God is no mere human. He doesn't tell lies or change his mind. God always keeps his promises. Look at Joshua 21, 45. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. God keeps his promises. Abraham knows that God keeps his promises. So the first thing he did is he gave him a promise. He gave him a word. The second thing he did is that God entered into a blood covenant with Abraham. A blood covenant is, is it's the strongest agreement. It's the most binding contract. It's the most sacred oath that anyone could ever enter into. And, and death is actually the only way out of a blood covenant agreement. Abraham knows that God is never going to die. So this is an eternal covenant. So God sealed that promise in blood. This is what God did for Abraham. He gave him his word and he gave him his covenant. And this empowered Abraham to obey anything and everything that God told him to do, even to the level of killing his own son. And so what then has God done for us to gain our trust? How can we know that his word is true? How can we trust his voice? How can we have that kind of faith and that level of obedience that Abraham had? Two things. <laughs> Number one, he gave us his word. He gave us promises. He gave us a promise of his love in Isaiah 54, 10. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be, be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion for you. He's given you a promise of faithfulness. Hebrews 10 says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Look at 2 Corinthians. God has made a great many promises. They are all yes because of what Christ has done. So through Christ we say amen. We want God to receive glory. He's given us promise of his faithfulness. He's given us a promise that his word endures forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade in Isaiah 40, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. So he gave us his word. And number two, he entered into a blood covenant agreement with us through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.29 says, You who belong to Christ are Abraham's seed, so you will receive what God has promised. We qualify for all the promises of God through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews 6. He has given us both his promise and his oath. Do you know what that is? His word and his covenant. He's given us both his promise and his oath. 
Two things we can completely count on. For it's impossible for God to tell a lie. Now all those who flee to him to, flee to, him to save them can take new courage when they hear such assurances from God. Now they can know without doubt that he will give them the salvation he's promised us. God has given us the same thing he gave Abraham. He's given us word and he's given us covenant. He's given us word and he's given us covenant. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so now we, and so now we can, can have that obedience and that faith like Abraham. Look what it, we can have this kind of faith in Romans 4, 21. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, he grew, his faith grew stronger. And this is in this and in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. We can be fully convinced now. We can be fully convinced. God has empowered us to obey because he's given us his word and he's given us his covenant. What an awesome God. Now, whatever God calls you to do, whatever he calls you to do, you can trust it. Even, even if it doesn't make sense, even if it hurts, you can trust it because he's a good, good father, amen? And God is always gonna do what he says he's gonna do. That's the God that we serve. Hallelujah. I just wanna invite our worship team forward. I preached way too long today. I preached way too long last week. I promise you I'm gonna give you a reprieve next Sunday. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a shorter one, I promise. Okay, now I got to make sure I do that. But, um, and so what we do is we have our worship team come out at the end of service because we want to give you an opportunity to respond to what God's saying in your heart, right? And so maybe the Holy Spirit is talking to your conscience throughout this message. Maybe the Holy Spirit's saying um, that you need Jesus today. Maybe the Holy Spirit's saying that you need to not be so touchy, that you need to forgive, right? Whatever, whatever God is, is, is talking to us about, this is our opportunity now to respond, right? We're not just here to, to have fun and sing and, and have coffee, but, but we're here to, to engage with God Almighty and to respond to the voice of the Lord and the word of God. So this is our opportunity to respond. Okay, and so as the worship team plays, you are absolutely welcome to, uh, to sing and worship, but you're also welcome to just, to just to sit and just to be in the presence of God and just to hear the voice of the Lord today. And part of that response might be for prayer. Maybe you feel God's calling you to pray. And, and so uh, our prayer team is also going to be standing up front. I'd like to invite our prayer team forward at this time. And so if you'd like to, to pray, they're going to come and they're going to agree with you in prayer this morning. But let's just spend some time with the Lord.